Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. And we're here with a special guest, Elizabeth McNulty. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you all for having me. Elizabeth is also an attorney here at the Simon Law Firm with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do here, Elizabeth? Sure. So I practice a lot with Tim. My voice might sound familiar. I'm on another podcast in the office called Heels in the Courtroom. I have been practicing since 2019. I graduated from WashU, but I have been clerking at the firm previous to that. So happy to have been invited to be on the podcast. What you bring to this topic is that you have one foot in two worlds. You are a recent law school graduate, but you're also a somewhat experienced lawyer. So you can talk about the transition from being a law student to being a lawyer very naturally. Our topic is things they don't teach you in law school. Why don't you start us off? You've got a few ideas. Sure. So I think that once you get out of law school, you quickly realize that you don't learn much about how to be an actual attorney in law school. I think it sort of prepares you for maybe the bar. Some might say that it doesn't, but you don't learn a whole lot about the ins and outs of your everyday practice in law school, unfortunately. So I think there are plenty of things that you learn on the job, especially at smaller firms. It's a lot of trial by fire. And so that makes your first few years of practice incredibly stressful. So I think probably the number one thing is to surround yourself with colleagues that can kind of show you the ropes Having support staff around you, they know much more about you do than the practice of law, believe it or not. So taking care of those people and respecting their opinions and showing how they bring value to your cases can really help. It can be tricky to kind of navigate managing, you know, staff and admin as, you know, a first year lawyer. And I think that that's something lawyers aren't necessarily good at managing people. So it's something that you kind of have to learn on the job. And it can be difficult to kind of wrap your head around while you're also trying to be a practicing lawyer. But I mean, paralegals are a great way to learn how to do your job. And they know more about the law than you do, probably. You know, so many young attorneys, they go straight from college to law school to being a lawyer. A lot of men and women, new lawyers, may not have had any real adult job before. And then all of a sudden, your first one, you are in a position of authority with staff working for you and with you that help you. And it can be a little bit difficult to try to figure that out at first. And like Elizabeth says, if you don't have a good working relationship with your staff where you treat them well and make them feel like they're a part of your team, they can teach you things, it makes your job so much harder. We're surrounded with tasks that I think of as see one, do one, teach one. They're not that hard, but there's a lot of them. And I don't know how to do them when I'm in my first couple of weeks or months as an attorney, like how to get a subpoena issued, how to file a case, how to get the summons to go out, how to get a medical record. There's a lot of those things I still don't know, Eric, because we have such a great paralegal that has like decades more experience that I've never had to deal with a lot of that. She just knows how to do it. And I think you want to try to remember you're all part of the same team that's working towards a common goal. You don't want to have your staff feel like you're just treating them as like somebody who's there to do tasks for you because they're trying to help your clients too, just like you are. I suspect this is going to be a theme throughout our episodes on this topic is that the investment you put in your staff, the time you take, for instance, to go out to lunch once in a while with your secretary or your paralegal these all pay back like orders of magnitude greater in terms of time and functioning 
Are you both in agreement with that? You got to just take the time to slow down and make sure the people you work with are appreciated. I think that I found that people care more about their work when they feel valued as a member of the team. I think one misstep that a lot of young lawyers make is trying to kind of assert their authority over a staff person. And I think that that is a huge mistake because, you know, like we've touched on, that person knows a lot more about the law than you do. They know about how the logistics of cases work and how to get things done. And I mean, there are some long hours, especially as a trial attorney, you know, same goes for our staff. And once they feel part of the process and that we really value the work that they do, which we do, they are invaluable members of our teams, then they're going to want to put in those long hours and not just an eight to five for them. So I think that's a really vital thing that is overlooked by a lot of young lawyers. I think it's also important not to pigeonhole the folks you work with to say, oh, you are a secretary, so you do only those things. I've found over the years that secretaries, clerks, all kinds of folks that we work with have invaluable suggestions about case strategy, or you're doing your closing argument and they say, well, why don't you ask this? Or why don't you suggest that? And I'm going, of course, that's a great idea that I hadn't thought of. When we're too in the weeds, instead of thinking about things, how a juror might, you know, staff that works with you every day and even staff that's at your office that doesn't work with you on your day-to-day job or on that case. You know, we oftentimes will have like many focus groups just with our staff here where we'll do an opening or kind of explain the case and the issues from both sides and ask the thoughts of the staff. And they'll shout out things that we didn't think of. And we're like, oh, we have to address that. And if they don't care about their job, they're not going to care about trying to help. You know, if they don't feel like you value them, they're not going to be as helpful. Right. I think this was before either of you were here, but we had a train crossing case where we had a focus group and everybody in the firm was invited. There were secretaries and lawyers and we were all crowded in listening to how the focus group jurors would react to it. And then afterwards, John Simon asked people what they thought about it. And everybody thought we had a strong case. Like most everybody did, except for one secretary. And she said, I don't know if I'm buying all this. And you know what he did? Of course, he came over to the table and sat right next to her and talked to her for like 25, 30 minutes. He wanted to know what was going on? Why wasn't she finding this to be persuasive? And it was a really good conversation. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize, you know, we're goal oriented. We have things we have to get done because we're responsible for the cases that when we give a task to a member of our team, that's a part of the staff that takes time and not to just jump on them like, Hey, why isn't that done yet? And try to recognize all of the things you've given them and that they're doing to help you and be understanding that, you know, the things we give to them oftentimes take a lot more time than we realize. I'm a solo practitioner without any other employees, and I've noticed how much time I spend scheduling. The calendar is a big, big deal. Yes, that is tricky work. And when you say, hey, can you get a deposition together? There's eight other attorneys. That won't happen in two minutes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, back in law school, I don't know if I had much of a calendar. I think I had a paper calendar, and it was just like, you know, go to class on these days and get the homework done. And I had a job on the side, but I had no idea how important the calendar would be. And I've learned that I need to dominate my calendar and then my calendar dominates me. If I don't have something on my calendar, I don't remember it. Yeah. Even yeah, personal stuff. That's another thing. I do think often, oh, I'll remember that. No, you probably won't. There's just too much stuff going on. The calendar is my best friend when it's done right. I learned to populate it, not just with events that I need to be somewhere, but the way I use it. I give myself ticklers about, you know, are you thinking about this thing that's coming up in a month? When I get off the phone with someone, they promise me something. 
first thing you do when I hang up, put it on the calendar. Did they follow through with that thing? Everything. I think it's important. And, you know, this is an adjustment for somebody who's a new lawyer. You have so many balls in the air in the practice of law. You can't remember them all. And a good practice is as soon as you get deadlines in a case or you get something where you need to look up the rule and see where your deadline to respond, immediately make sure it goes on the calendar. Don't put it off later because you might forget. I schedule in the need to keep learning, you know, not just going to CLEs, but a lot of what I do for self-improvement is just reading articles or I tap into journals or go to lectures or watch videos. That's all on my calendar. And in fact, I've learned, this is from Laura Vanderkam. She's a time management expert. She's been on TED and it's a wonderful talk. She said, if you want to make your life memorable, you need to schedule things in and then do them or else it doesn't happen. Yeah. And I found that that's absolutely true for friendships, getting together with people, making sure you take time out to do things that are important to you aside from law. But that's all on my calendar. If my calendar is self-destructed, I think I'd jump out the window. It's all there. There's so much in there and I really need it. You have to look ahead and plan ahead constantly with your calendar. Be looking at the next week and the next week and trying to figure out an idea of how long something's going to take to get something accomplished. Because if you just wait till Monday and you look at your calendar and you're like, ah, I don't have like a deadlines on Monday or a depot till Tuesday, and you didn't look at Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you might end up in real trouble where like, oh, I guess I'm not sleeping Monday night or Tuesday night because I didn't do anything for this last week or over the weekend. Daniel Kahneman talks about the optimism bias where you schedule something and you say, oh, that'll take two hours. Yeah. And then it takes six or it might take one. You know, it can go the other way too, but it's tough to estimate how long something will take. Have you found that too, Elizabeth? I think it's one of the more difficult things to learn coming out of law school because, I mean, writing assignments, you get six weeks to do something. Here, you know, I might have a couple of days to do it on top of eight other things. Another thing tricky about it as a young lawyer, my time isn't really my own time. I work on a team. A lot of things are delegated to me. Um, <laughs> so that can be tricky because sometimes things come up last minute, a lot of plates spinning in the air. But one thing I have learned is when things get delegated to me, it doesn't necessarily mean I need to do them. I just need to make sure that they get done. First couple probably months of my practice, there were things that I was asked to do that were probably more paralegal tasks. And it took me a little bit to realize I just need to make sure that gets done. It's not something that I need to actually do myself. So things get delegated to you, but doesn't mean that you can't delegate them yourself. Definitely something I'm still learning. I mean, a lot of lawyers, even older lawyers, struggle with delegating. We can become control freaks. And that's just a recipe for disaster. If you don't efficiently delegate things out and trust the other members of your team, you end up in trouble. I want to circle back to one other thing about your personal life. This is something Amy Gunn mentioned on our earlier podcast. She makes sure she puts that vacation time on the calendar and goes. And it sounds obvious that you should take vacations. There are years where I didn't. I just didn't put it on the calendar and the year goes by. And you're going, where is this time going? So it's really important to capture this and to use it efficiently. And it's a paradox because a lot of us want to have some free time we want to have some time where we're not scheduled, but if you don't schedule it, you won't have those quality experiences. If you don't have good time management and scheduling skills, you cannot do the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is maintain a healthy work-life balance. You know, we take our jobs home with us. We become obsessive about them. I mean, it's good that you care about your client. It becomes hard to put your cases aside. In my experience, it's become more difficult to talk to non-lawyers because so much of our time, you know, there's a way we talk and all we're thinking about is our cases. 
I think it's pretty generally understood and there's been studies about it. Lawyers have much higher levels of stress, anxiety, depression, substance abuse than other professions. And I think any practicing lawyer knows that and understands why. So it's especially important to pay attention to your mental health and to value your personal and family time and take time for it when you can. Have hobbies, read for fun, exercise, do stuff with your friends or with your family. If you have a case that settles that was going to go to trial and you have free time, take advantage of it. I think this goes along nicely with kind of learning to set boundaries. Law school, you're kind of just live and die by classes and preparing for them and everything like that. But if you translate that into your career, you need to find time for all the other things that makes life enjoyable. And I think that was an especially hard lesson for me to learn because I felt like all of my time needed to be devoted to my job. But I quickly learned that I wasn't doing my job well if I was just 24-7 work, work, work. And I think I can't be alone in that the pandemic kind of things slowed down a bit. And I realized that, you know, there are other things in life aside from work. It's certainly an important part, but you need to make time for other things. Like Tim said, your family, your friends, exercising, putting your mental health first, because that's how you're going to be a good lawyer. Elizabeth, how many of the things that we are now passionately talking about did you learn in law school? I don't think any of them, believe it or not. And yet I think all these are critical. Yeah, vital to a healthy practice. Tim, you mentioned how hard it is to talk to friends. I find that my mind races when I'm with someone who's not a lawyer. They'll say, hey, what are you working on? And then I'll talk way too long and way too fast. And their eyes glaze over and I've overcome them with all this stuff. You know, people like hearing our stories, depending upon what the case <laughs> is about. A lot of people find it interesting but my wife can't stand it when we go to dinner with an attorney friend of mine and we just talk about work. And she's like, oh, my God, me and his wife or her husband are just left out of the conversation. Can you guys stop? And it's really hard to do. And I have some attorney friends of mine who just won't do it. And I think it's a good rule. You know, if we'll meet him for happy hour or a drink or something and I'll start talking to one of them about work and the two others will say, hey. Like the baseball game is on. Let's talk about anything other than the stress we've experienced for the last nine hours and will again tomorrow. If I can add one other thing about the addictions and the stress and all that, this is not something I appreciated in law school either because we were all a lot younger. We could sleep four hours a night sometimes. We could abuse our bodies in various ways and bodies are resilient back then. And then something happens as you get older and it really pays off to take care of yourself. You know, you are a human animal in addition to being a lawyer and you got to water and feed and exercise and all that stuff and, you know, spread your mind in other directions to feel, you know, comfortable in your world. I found it's really good for me to spread my interests in other ways too. Yeah. And take care of your body. It's especially important because excess amounts of stress are terrible for your body in many ways. And we have so much stress. We've had discussions, at least in some of the newsletters here about friendships. We published an article a while back and to not have many friends endangers your health. It's like the equivalent of your lifespan of smoking cigarettes is to not have friendships. It may or may not be that the lawyers you work with are also your friends. That's certainly possible. But I made it a point to schedule, this is back to the calendar, I put events on my calendar probably three times a week where I spend time with friends. And I do this usually by walking with them. You know, a lot of people would say, hey, let's have lunch. I say, hey, let's walk. A lot of people go, what? And then they think about it and go, absolutely. Just go to a park and walk. And so you're now you're exercising, visiting. It's one way to get a twofer, as I think of it. I think one of, if not the top part of your actual practice that they don't teach you in law school that really takes time and is difficult 
is learning how to talk to and deal with your clients. And I don't mean deal with your clients with a negative connotation, but how to talk to them and maintain a good relationship with them. The first time you meet with a client or when you're meeting with the first time about a particular case or issue, let them tell their story. They need someone to listen to them so they feel heard and understood. Usually if I'm talking to a client, they're in a vulnerable state. Something terrible has happened to them or a member of their family. It's important to convey empathy. It helps them to tell you the truth, which is important, you know, to try to get your clients to understand, look, tell me the good and the bad. I don't just want to hear what you think I want to hear. I need to know everything now and then I can deal with it. You have to learn how to have difficult conversations, including telling clients things they don't want to hear. I think if they feel heard and understood, that becomes a lot easier. I think this is one of the things that isn't as natural, but at the end of the day, it's just talking to another person. So even if you don't feel necessarily equipped to do it, because a lot of our clients have such tragic horrific events that happened to them. And I feel like in the first couple of these conversations, I felt like I couldn't necessarily relate to them because I hadn't been through anything similar. But you kind of just have to have empathy for that person, put yourself in their shoes. And like Tim said, they just want someone to listen to them. A lot of these people don't feel heard or they don't feel like a proper investigation has gone into whatever they've experienced. And that's kind of, at the end of the day, we're just looking for answers for them. And I think that once you gain their trust, they're a lot more open and willing to tell you all of the details, maybe the not so good things that have happened. And I mean, that really helps when it comes time to prep them for their depot or for trial, they'll feel a lot more open in having conversations with you. I catch myself sometimes in initial client meetings way too soon or immediately going into lawyer mode. I know as soon as I kind of know what the case is about, here's 10 pieces of information I need to get. And I'll start barging in with questions too quick and I can feel them, you know, kind of sit back in their chair or cross their arms like I messed up. I need to let them tell their story, even stuff I know it doesn't matter before I say, okay, now I need to ask some specific questions. I have a difficult time listening. Yeah, I tend too. to jump in <laughs> and I have to consciously remind myself repeatedly, stop and let them talk. And a lot of times... They don't know what's important. They know what's important to them, and it may not be important to the case. And I don't know if there's a way to get the good stuff to come out without hearing the irrelevant stuff, too. I agree. And you just have to sit there and make sure you give them the space. It's tough for me to do. It's very hard for me. I'm incredibly impatient. You know, it's something you have to practice, and you'll slip up sometimes. Elizabeth's a lot better at it than I am. She's not as impatient as I am. You have to let them tell you the whole story of what they want to tell you before you can start going into, okay, here's what I need to know. And make sure you explain the process and relevant aspects of the law you think they need to know up front so that you aren't getting a call two months later saying like, where's my settlement money? Well, the case isn't filed yet. We had to do this, this, and this. And you want to manage expectations up front because it helps much further down the road when you're talking about possible resolutions or trial expectations. Something that I'm not very good at, but luckily our paralegal Kelly is great at and Elizabeth is good at, is remembering to keep your clients updated. Even if there isn't something, if you haven't talked to them in a month or two and you know you're working on their case, they don't. You know, call them on a Monday at six if you're still at the office and just say, hey, I haven't talked to you. I just wanted to let you know there's not a whole lot going on, but here's what's happening. Here's what will happen soon. And that does wonders. You know, they feel like you care about them and you are working on the case. It's so much worse if you didn't call them and the next day they might call and go, you haven't told me anything. What's going on with my case? You're not doing anything. Keep them updated. I heard something you said earlier about, you know, the good and the bad. A lot of clients, I think, are hesitant to tell you the things they're afraid that might hurt their case. Yeah. I absolutely agree with what you said. 
In fact, I make it a very big point that I need to hear it because maybe we can do something about it. But if you don't tell me, it'll pop out in the middle of trial and then it's it might too be late. too late. <laughs> it's too late. And so you need to get them comfortable with the idea that, you know, if they were distracted driving or whatever it was in a case, I need to hear it and it's okay. Right. You got a DUI 10 years ago. They might think, oh my God, nobody can know that. Well, actually I can exclude that from evidence. If you tell me everything you tell me, I can deal with it. If I don't know it, I might not be able to deal with it later. There's something else I've learned to deal with, with clients. And when we talk about their upcoming depositions, I'll sometimes go into cross-examination mode. Yeah. And I need to make sure I tell them, and I do this very carefully now, that I'm going to be brutal. Defense lawyer right now. <laughs> I'm going to ask you questions because the other person will ask those. So I'm trying to prep you to help you. I'm helping you. I'm not attacking your case. And that really goes a long way to helping them understand. And then when you're done with that, it's fun to say, that's fantastic. Now you will go into your deposition. It will not be that hard. Yeah, it won't be as bad as I was. Well, depends Hopefully. on who the lawyer is on the other <laughs> side. Sometimes I'll say it might be worse. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's talking with and dealing with clients. We've touched on, you know, the initial meeting and beginning and throughout the case. And then, you know, there's an art to prepping them for a depot, which is something you were just touching on, Eric, where included in it is prepping them for cross on hard issues but also how to talk to them and prep them and try to make them as comfortable as they can about the process, make sure they understand it, issues they'll be asked about, how important their behavior and demeanor is in the depot, often more important than the words that they say. And just learning as you do it more and more, the things you should talk to your client about to prep them as best as possible beforehand. Same for trial. I want to help them have the right attitude in the deposition as far as I don't want them feeling like they should be cowering, like the big lawyers in the room and you should be like a meek little person. And so I go out of my way to say, you are the guest of honor. You are the most important person in the room. You get to tell your story. You get to tell it at your own pace. You know, I try to calm their nerves by saying, look, your job is not to win your case today in your depot. That's my job in this case. Your job is just to be nice and respectful, but stand your ground. And don't let words be put in your mouth and listen carefully to the question and just answer that question as truthfully as you can. You don't have to win the case today. That's what you hired me to do. I find that at least it's something that's helpful to me is to be able to picture exactly how the day is going to go. So I try to set them up for that with the logistics, because I think that's something that we get caught up in. Like we want to tell them about like how they can answer questions and prepare them for cross. But they also need to be prepared, you know, what to wear. There's going to be a court reporter there, the other people, the other lawyers that are going to be there to kind of set the scene for them in their mind just so they're more comfortable. And I found that being able to produce them over Zoom has actually been pretty beneficial in our practice because they're at their homes. They're already a lot more comfortable. It's not all of that nervous energy kind of pent up. So I think that that has been pretty helpful. That reminded me when I'm dealing with a potential new client or an independent witness, I like to make the gesture of going to meet them where they are. With COVID, it hasn't been as easy, but just showing up or saying, hey, I'll meet you somewhere near your house at a Starbucks or whatever. I think that gesture goes a long way to saying, I'm not going to come in the room, be the boss and tell you what to do. You are an important person to this case. And I think that investment is well worth its while. Here's another thing that I don't think is easily learned in law school where you learn primarily from books and lectures. I think you just have to do it. And I'm going to borrow one of John Simon's quotes. He says, don't swat every mosquito. He said that to me in trial ed when he was my trial ed teacher in law school back in like 2009. He was like, great job, but you spent so much time destroying them on things that didn't matter. You kind of lost what did. You know, we were trained in law school to spot issues. That's one of the most important skills you learn. 
It's really important. But then the next step is which one of those issues are important. And that's not easy to know because you haven't been through the whole process to see how some of these early issues might or might not play out in the end result. And so it can be paralyzing at first. I'm thinking back. It's been a while, but I think when I was first a lawyer, I saw so many things to think about that I didn't quite know what to do next. Could you comment on that, Elizabeth? Well, I was a clerk for a couple of years with Tim, and then I started working with him as an attorney. And I think that one of his strengths is how efficient he is. And I'm sure, you know, part of that comes from learning from John. And so I haven't necessarily had a huge issue with kind of getting caught up in things that don't matter just because it's not really a part of our practice. We're pretty lean and stay pretty efficient because the caseload is pretty heavy. So it's not something that I've necessarily had a hard time with just because I think that I probably was fortunate enough to learn from some of Tim's mistakes probably in the earlier years of his practice. Working smart is just as important as working hard, if not more important. A lot of my work has been in appellate work or writing briefs. And, you know, you see all these briefs where someone makes a point and they cite 30 cases. Or they have 12 points they're raising in their appellate brief and you shake your head. You're losing your good two. I learned that one easily. <laughs> you know, you have three or four points, but you might and just you really want like two. Because you're right. And it's just not the thing that's going to make you win. Spend times on things both in appellate practice and briefs and from the outset of your case in how you plead it. Throughout discovery, spend time on things that help your client's case the most. Don't get too distracted or have time wasted on side issues. Don't object to everything that's objectionable. Right. The jury gets frustrated. The judge gets frustrated. If you only make a couple objections, judge probably going to pay attention to what those objections are. I used to work with a guy who would be very emotional and if somebody insulted him on the phone or whatever, he would go up and down the hall and complain to every attorney, you'll never believe what happened. This guy said this thing, isn't it stupid? And I think you're wasting, there's probably a Buddhist story somewhere in here about letting it go. You're letting them control you now to make you go up and down the hall to waste more time. But yeah, your time is precious, it's non-replenishable. And so if you can decide what's important, and I don't know how to do it other than getting out there and doing a lot of stuff and getting some experience. Yeah. You know, increasingly so, you can get overwhelmed by your email inbox throughout the day. And I'm not very good at this, but if I have a brief I'm working on all day, I'm better at it. And I know like Tony Simon does this. He has like a rule about it. He has set times where he will go through his emails, like either like beginning of the day and end of the day, or maybe check it at noon. Instead of just keeping it open on your desktop, and you get the pop-ups and you're working on a brief and you're like, oh, I can't believe that guy just said that. And then you furiously type out an email you don't need to send and isn't healthy for you or productive for anybody to send. And then it takes you 20 minutes to refocus back on what you were doing. And there's science on that. Yeah. It does take Close you a your time. email down and have times, especially if you have a really busy day or week, where you're going to check it. And the world doesn't like you doing that. There's a lot of people that will say, I texted you 30 minutes ago. And I'm thinking, yeah, I shut my phone down. I'm not perfect at this, but yeah. I'm doing this better and better over the last decade of just shutting it down and saying, I'm gone for three hours. That's how you'd be in a deposition. You shut it down. You're paying attention to your deposition. So why wouldn't you shut it down when you're writing a brief or analyzing a case? It's hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't have the self-control to do that. I'm a religious email checker, but I won't necessarily respond right away, which I think helps. But, you know, again, being probably the younger lawyer on the team, I'm not sure that I have the luxury to do some of those things some of the time. <laughs> you know, I need to answer the phone when it rings. So I could see where it would be beneficial if I was working on something like really important and that was known by everyone on the team. We have a lot more to talk about, but we're going to take a pause right now and we'll be back for another episode 
with more issues, more things you don't learn in law school. So we'll see you next time with part two of the same conversation. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beeth. I'm Tim Cronin. With Elizabeth McNulty. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you all next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.